The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. What's going on, Mile High? And welcome back to Sharing Our Stories. My name is Slim, along with Nani Al-Jalil from Tribe Recovery Homes, and our guest, Leland Harry from Missouri. And if this is your first time checking in with us, well, welcome to Sharing Our Stories. This program is about addiction and recovery. Everybody in this room has dealt with addiction to drugs and or alcohol, and we are in our recovery, and we want to share with people that recovery happens and that, yes, you can recover too. So Thank you for being here, for sharing our stories and checking in with us. And welcome, 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 welcome. Right now, it is time to turn our attention to Leland Harry, our guest. Oh, yeah. Leland <laughs> Harry from Missouri. Watch it. Who works for another amazing organization here in Denver, Colorado called Advocates for Recovery. And when I first got into my recovery, one of the first people I met was somebody who he works with, Tanya Wheeler, who is, she's been on this program long ago go she is amazing she is yes, she's she just is. awesomeness and the people she surrounds herself with are amazing and awesomeness and so we have one of those people with us today yeah which I, as soon as i saw that it, leland worked for advocates for recovery i was like this is going to be awesome <laughs> yes rock star status you know so um leland thank you for for coming in thank you for having me this program is about sharing our stories of addiction and recovery. And our guest today is Leland Harry from Missouri. And we turn it over to him here for sharing our stories. Oh, buckle up. <laughs> here we go. Um, so, yeah, I uh, I never really had a foundation of home. Uh, my dad was in the military. We separated ways when I was very young. So my dad is full blood Cherokee Indian. Most of his family and himself included, live on the res under tribal land. Um, and my mom is not. My mom is, you know, your typical Caucasian. So when I would go visit my dad on the res as this little bitty fat kid that kind of looked Indian, kind of didn't, um, I wasn't allowed to participate in a lot of things. I was shunned. The other kids hated me. They pick on me, bully me um, because I wasn't one of them. And then I'd go back home to my mom and into the, you know, the white school and I was the Indian there. So the land that surrounded them was tribal land. So they kind of had a negative outlook against the Native Americans. So no matter where I went, I didn't fit in. I didn't belong. Um, then dad left. So didn't have any support. My mom was heavy in her addiction. So she would take off. Um for years at a time and just kind of tossed me to aunts, uncles, grandmother, whomever was available. So I didn't have any type of community. I didn't have a family per se. Um, mom would swoop in every now and then be there for a couple months, take off. Um, I would go to different schools. And as soon as I would start making friends, we would move. So change and loss is something that I started to deal with at a very young age and not fitting in um, struggled with that all the way up until high school. And I ended up in Branson, Missouri. That's where I would consider home. Um, even though I was only there for like three years and then moved away as soon as I graduated high school, I've been back for some friends weddings, but it's not a place that, you know, I have roots there, but that was the longest term of my life of living somewhere. So that's, that's where I would consider home. Um, How many places have you lived? Oh, my gosh. I couldn't even <laughs> count. Um, <laughs> I'm going to need more Red Bull and a pad of paper. <laughs> uh, Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, all over the place. We just kind of bounced around. Okay. Um, and it would be those times where mom would come in and swoop me and my brother. We'd go live with her for a little while, and then she'd take us back to grandma's or something like that. So I would go back to a school again, maybe for a semester, and then move on to the next place. So... When we finally found a place and 
we didn't, we lived in a tent. Like I was in high school and my family lived in a tent at a campground. We didn't have a house. We were very, very, very poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I admired in my friends was their strong family connections. So that followed me throughout my entire life. So when I would start dating people, I would date the ones that had a really strong family connection, kind of latch onto them like a surrogate family because I didn't have one. I didn't have anything. And I would use all of that to shove down and have more pity parties inside my head. Um, feeling that, you know, people just didn't understand that they couldn't relate to me. So uh, I would use that in my addiction, which came a little later. So I had my first kid when I was 18, right out of high school, uh, went to college for a minute and then came back home to raise a family. And I would maybe drink on the weekends here and there, but I wasn't acting a fool. That didn't happen until the divorce started. Um, and I started working a part-time job at a bar. I found an identity. You know, I found people who appreciated me mm-hmm. on that side of the bar and on this side of the bar because we all connected over something. And I felt like I belonged for the first time. Um, right after that, I started playing music. And so I was bartending and playing music and I fit in all over the place. People wanted to be around me. At this point, you're still having fun. I'm yeah, having this, too much fun. You know, this is where everybody thinks it's okay. <laughs> I went from being, you know, someone that felt like they didn't belong, didn't have a purpose. You know, mom didn't want me around. I was bouncing around everywhere. And then all of a sudden I've got people who want to hang out with me, you know, to do things that, you know, wasn't conducive to anybody's well-being. But I had friends. I had a family. Um, when the holidays came around, I had somewhere to go for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I didn't have that beforehand. Um, so the addiction started with that sense of community. I fit in, I had friends and when I was drinking and drugging, um, they were there. So it just kind of was a natural route for me to follow. Um, and again, being a bartender and then playing music and, the music actually started to get a little popular. We were touring. I was going and doing radio shows oh, in yeah. you know places similar to this. Um, not quite as fancy. Didn't have the desk here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that just fueled like my my identity is that I'm doing something right. People want to be around me. People respect me. People you know look up to me. Um, and it's because I was drinking and drugging. You know, I was making them feel f- like they belonged, they had a purpose. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I dove in and I used that, I guess, self-hatred from an early childhood. I would use that as fuel for my addiction. Um, that with everything else, you know, I blame everybody else, bus driver, guy at the grocery store, everybody was the reason as to why I was stopping at the liquor store, calling my plug. Um, but it continued. I, I kept bartending because it was quick, easy, easy cash. All my dealers were my customers. They were right there. So I didn't have to go anywhere to look for it. Um, and you know, if I got drunk and fell off stage, that was just part of being in a punk rock band, you know? So it it didn't have (laughs) any like repercussions. It was like kind of cool show. That's awesome. Um, and so I, I just skated by, you know, I skated by and I'm, I made really good money at one point in time, but I never had anything to show for it because of my addiction. Um, when you're in that environment, nobody's telling you, oh, you need to slow down. No. You're at the bar. No, you know, not oh, at all. Oh, you're in the punk rock band. You really need to cool down. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Right. <laughs> or when you're going backstage and playing, you know, the shows kept getting bigger, kept getting bigger, made it on a couple labels. And there was more in the green room of anything and everything you wanted. Um so it was right there. It was to be expected in that lifestyle. And that's what I identified as. Um, I would tell people all the time, I'm a musician, you know, I'm doing this. I'm a bartender whenever I'm in town. And that's how I lived. I lived that I was supposed to sex drugs and rock and roll. I was supposed to be blacked out every day. I thought that that's what you, you did. Um, because the people that I used to look up to in their rock and roll bands, that's what they did, you know? Um, so I thought that I was doing the right thing in the back of my head. 
I knew that my relationship with my kids, I had three at this time, um, had fallen apart. I had joint custody, but I only saw them here and there. They had moved out of state. And that was another reason for me to continue the use instead of trying to do something positive and get them you know, back in my life, I would use it as an excuse to go out and party, which meant that more popularity, the band was more successful. Um, in the back of my head, I was like, oh, once I start making money and I'm famous, then my kids are going to love me. And that's what I would tell myself all the time. Um, I would get so bad. I would sell my guitars or I'd pawn them. Even though I was making good money, I didn't have any money. So I would sell them or pawn them and forget that I had a show the next night. And I'd show up to the summit or, you know, the marquee and be like, anybody have a guitar I can use? (laughs) Because I don't have one right now. (laughs) But I'm supposed to perform. But I'm Yeah, exactly. And I, in my mind, I didn't even think that. I was just like, I need instant cash right now to get my fix. Um, And it went like that for years, for years. I would try to get clean. And when I say try to get clean, I would try to stop using alcohol. I didn't think I had a problem with everything else I was doing. Um, There was a bar that I worked at in Oklahoma that our tip jars at the end of the night, I'd go to collect my money and it'd be full of pills, little nugs, all kinds of stuff in there and dollar bills. But that's when I just started experimenting. I I had no idea beforehand. Um, And then when you start playing with, larger bands and in the green room, you know, when I'm seeing other drugs that I've never seen before. And these guys are, they're on MTV, you know, they're, they're the big deal. And this is what they're doing. I must, I must be doing it too. And I did, but never made it successful. Um, so I would try to get clean, go to detox. I was on Medicaid. I didn't have many options. All you could really do is go to a detox for a couple of days, maybe be lucky to do it a two week program at West Pines. Um, but generally what would happen is I would catch a case. I would do something stupid, DUIs, fighting, something to where I would end up behind bars opposed to end up in treatment. Um, and it was tough because I had the Medicaid and I would call places and nobody would take it. And I didn't have anything else to do. So I'd just go right across the street or call the plug, um, start that self-pity thing again the resources weren't there. This was years ago, but there was nothing there. Um, and I didn't look hard enough for it either. You know, I'd get that no and be like, well, that just means I need to go back out. So I'd end up in jail. I'd come back, do it again, come back. I might stop drinking for a little while, but I wasn't stopping anything else. In my mind, I would tell people, well, I'm, I'm sober, I'm clean, yet I was not by any means. Um, this went on for a long time. And then finally, The turning point basically was I went to my psychiatrist and told him about my anxiety issues. And before I could even finish saying what my ailments were, I was given prescriptions for Xanax Um, and found out that whenever I mixed that with alcohol, there, there wasn't a tomorrow. You know, I didn't, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know anything of what had happened. Um, I found out that I would wake up behind random dumpsters on Colfax. I lived on Colfax, but why behind dumpsters? I don't know, but I could point them out still. <laughs> uh, yep. Woke up there. Woke up behind that one. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. Landmarks. They are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. They were apparently. I have no idea. Um, and it got bad because I would get a prescription and then I would call my doctor a week later and be like, I'm out. I need more. And they would just refill them. Um, and then I started seeing another doctor that prescribed me clonopin. And in my mind, these are prescriptions that a doctor is giving me because of my anxiety. And I was upfront with them. I was like, that is why I'm drinking. That's why I'm doing all these other drugs is the anxiety and depression and everything I have going on in my head. Um, because to back up a little bit, um, when I was 15 years old was the first time I tried to commit suicide. And I did that numerous times through my 20s, even in the height of, you know, getting signed to a record label and going on tour or things like that. I had this little bouts of success, but inside it was still turmoil. Exactly. So I would wake up in the hospital. Um, I would have, you know, 72 hour holds a lot of times. Uh, I had the turtle jacket on many times. Um, 
but it was just kind of a, a pattern that kept going on. I would do well, then I'd get really depressed. I'd break everything down. You know, if I was successful in something, I'd destroy it and then use that as more fuel to use and why I shouldn't be here. So many attempts. Um, when I went to see the doctors, I told them about that, that I didn't want to drink anymore. Um, I was suicidal. I needed help. That was their way of helping. I had a prescription of Xanax. I had a prescription of Clonopin. And no, I did not take them the way they should. I was eating them by the handfuls. And for about a year, I blacked out every day. I would wake up, my cell phone would be gone. Um, my laptop from work would be gone because I was trying to get out from behind the bar, still working in the bars in a different capacity. Um, but I wasn't behind the bar. So I thought I was, I was doing the right thing. You know, the drink's not in my hand, even though it was because I was networking with, uh, liquor reps and companies. So they were giving us free booze. And so it was in my hand, just in a different capacity. Um, but in my mind, I was doing the right step to get out of there. I was on this medication a doctor was giving me. I wasn't behind the bar, um, but the suicidal thoughts didn't stop. My August 21st, 2017, I woke up floating in the Platte River downtown right in front of the REI. Um, my head was on the bank. I was wearing a suit, tie, suspenders even. I looked good. Um, <laughs> but... I was covered in blood, beat up, black eye, um, no idea how I got there because the night before, um, I was hosting a, an event on top of the DeVita building, which is kind of downtown. Um, we were doing a fundraiser. I had a bunch of chefs there, bartenders, all kinds of things to raise money for a children's department in a hospital. And I told my boss that night that I couldn't do it anymore. I was done. I'll do this one event this last time. And that was the last time I had those suicidal thoughts standing on the, the roof of this building, having eaten two bottles worth of the Xanax and Klonopin, um, walking around with my 750 of alcohol that was given to me for free and was just hoping that I would fall off that ledge. Somebody actually pulled me off. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up floating in the river. I have no idea how I got there, how I ended up in the river, how I got all beat up. Um, I woke up, went home, stopped at the liquor store beforehand, of course, but went home, took a shower, and I felt horrible. I couldn't really move. My body was given out, so I laid in bed, and my buddy was uh, the general manager of this restaurant, bar, venue, slash, slash, slash that I was working at. Um, I didn't have a phone because I lost it again. He sent me an email stating that the police had come by the restaurant looking for me. Um, so I sent him an email back and was like, I guess I better go find out what it is. So got up, took a shower. I knew by where I was physically that nothing good could have come about. So Wrote my uh, roommate a letter with a check of every penny that I had. I had two motorcycles sitting outside, a bunch of guitars. I was like, if you don't see me again, it's yours. Here's the title. Because I had been so out of control. I was in fights on a regular basis. I was blacked out. You know, I didn't know what was going on most of the time. Um, and I just hated everything and everybody. So I was looking for fights. And... I knew something bad had happened. So when I was leaving my house, I lived in Park Hill at the time. Um, I had $2, $2 bills. That's it. And I was like, all right, I can get the bus, go to the police station, or I can stop across the street at the liquor store, which I did. And I walked. Um, even when I was bartending, even when I was playing shows, I used to bounce around on stage and shooters would fall out of my pockets. I was in those environments where I could drink for free. I had a bottle in my hand. I could drink as much as I wanted, but I would still hide it with shooters and run off to the bathroom and do it. So that was kind of like my last, like, I need to have shooter plus shaking and not feeling well. I walked down to the gang unit at City Park because I knew there was a police station there. I didn't know it was the gang unit. Um, walked in and was like, I think you guys are looking for me. Gave them my ID and they were like, yes, sit down. Um, cops came around the corner. They never put handcuffs on me. They were very nice. Um, took me downtown and 
went through the intake process. They were asking, you know, what I had been using, how much I'd been drinking. I told them everything and the suicidal thoughts. And so they threw me in this little room. There was no blankets, no pillows, no bed. It was just completely empty with a drain in the middle and would come in and monitor me. The nurse at the time, um, she would come in and wake me up, check my vitals, and I would ask for aspirin or ibuprofen, something, because going through the alcohol, benzos, and everything else that was in my system. Um, and she would tell me repeatedly that people like me deserve to die. So I never got anything, wow. nothing. Um, and it was bad. Like, I, I thought I was going to die. I mean, everything was coming out of my body. I couldn't move. I couldn't stand up. But I wanted to die. I was done. I didn't want to hurt anybody anymore. And I still didn't know what I had done to get there yet. So go in front of the judge a couple of days later, whenever I'm physically able. And the, so they kept you in that room for a couple of days like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no food. She'd give me water every now and then. But I, I mean, I couldn't eat anyway, but never got an Advil, never got anything like that. Um, which now looking back, I'm kind of glad that happened mm. because if it would have been an easy detox, mm. you know, something that would have been like all my other criminal experiences, you know, the attorneys would fight and be like, this was just a one off. You know, he's not this type of person, mm. um, which in reality I was. I mean, I like, kept yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, got but you I, fooled. Yeah, exactly. But I'd be like, I got to go back and take care of my kids, which I was paying child support. I never let that go. Um, but I was not there with them. Even when they stayed with me, I was hungover. I was under the influence. So I was never there for them. Um, so go in front of the judge and he hands me with a sentence of 164 years. Um and I go back into the holding area and everybody's like, yo, what's up? You're like, I didn't know um, because I hadn't met with the attorney yet. The DA or the, you know, pretender. Um, I hadn't met with him going over my discovery yet. So I didn't even know. I had no idea why I was in there and went back to my cell and I prayed to God for the first time. Truly, you know, the other times I would pray to God whenever I'm riding dirty and there's a cop behind me and I'm like, please, please, please don't get me. Please don't get me now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I promise I'll go to church tomorrow. Um, That type of praying I would do on a daily. But this was a different one. I went in and I remember laying in my bunk and just saying, thank you. You will take me off the streets. I will never be around another person because I thought I was going crazy. I couldn't control my thoughts. I didn't know who I was. I thought I even got to the point where I thought I was possessed Um, and I was scared of myself. And so I was thankful. And then when I did meet with the attorney, his first thing was, you know, they're just going to hit you with everything because I was on probation for an assault case already. And so they just amplified everything. Um, And he was like, no, 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 they're going to they're going to lower it. They threw everything at you like here. Here's all this stuff that. Couldn't have happened. They just put it in there for you, like resisting arrest. There, there was no police around. You know, like I woke up in the river and walked my happy, happy butt to the, the police station. Um, so that that did come out. But when he said that, I was like, no, I don't. I want to take it right now. I know that if you put me away for that long, I will never hurt another person again. I do not want to be out there. I don't feel safe. Um, I'm worried about the community. I don't know what I'm going to do because I would black out and wake up wherever every night. So a couple of months later, um, they dropped it down to 64 years and then I was ready to sign. It was like, give it to me. Let's do it. I'm done. Let's go. Um, and then the next time I went, they dropped it down to 10 and I signed a 10 year. So from 164. Mm-hmm. To 10. Yeah. Somebody's looking out for somebody. You. Well, it, it's great. I mean, I'm glad you said that because I was kind of upset. I was like, 10 years, yeah, I'm going to be old. You know, I'm not going to be that cool person anymore because I was still living in that lifestyle. You know, I was still, I was early 40s acting like a 20 year old. Um, And in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to go out there and act that way. So maybe I won't be using drugs. I don't know. Um, I was upset. I was upset about the 10 years, but I was, 
I was happy to an extent that I would be gone for a while and maybe something might change. Maybe I could learn something new. Um, but I hated myself. I hated myself so much that I wouldn't look at myself in the mirror. I had dreads. Like I, I showered, I was clean, but I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. So I just threw a hat on every day because I hated it. I hated the person that I was. Um, went to prison, went to my first yard, went to Buny, lower north. Somebody uh, jumped off the third tier as I was wheeling my stuff in, got locked down. That was my first experience when we walked in. Um, and that's when the, oh, you know, oh shit moment kicked in. Like, I don't want to be in here for 10 years or 164 years. Like I made a mistake. Uh, come get me. Um, and it was, it was weird because before I went in, no matter where I went in the city, any bar, any venue, everybody knew me. I never paid for anything and got there. Nobody gave up crap who I was. They didn't care who I was. They didn't want to know who I was. You know, they checked my paperwork as soon as I walked in to make sure that I was okay. Um, but they didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with me unless I was doing something for them. So I just laid my bunk. I was depressed, sad. I got super fat um, and just didn't want to, didn't want to live. Those suicidal thoughts started coming back in and I went to a therapist in there and she told me that I had um, depression, but it was just situational depression. And I got mad. I was like, what? You don't know me, sucker? Um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to plead my case. And she was just like writing notes like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have no idea what you're talking about. Get out of here. Um, I moved to a different facility and tried that process all over again. And the same thing happened. She was just like, yeah, you got situational depression. Like, deal with it. Do something. Get out of your bunk. Go do something. And I'm like, what? get out of my bunk. Um, and it's the thing that changed was I was walking to chow one day and I saw all these guys in there doing yoga. And, you know, people were walking by banging on the windows and stuff. And they were in there. And I remember thinking, look at how peaceful they are. Like, that's amazing. I've never experienced peace like that before. And I used to make fun of yoga all the time. Um, I was the one that would like, yeah, just being a fool. But I hated it. I hated the idea of it. And I would walk by every day to go into chow and they would have it and be like, damn, I should do that. I should get in there. Like, I want to do it. Finally got out the courage to do it. And it blew me away right off the bat because I had to be comfortable in myself. Like I had to sit there and breathe in myself, having all these thoughts going around and be comfortable with it. You know, I couldn't do the poses. I was fat. I couldn't even bend over and tie my boots. You know, I just walked around with my shoelaces dangling everywhere. Um, <laughs> it was bad, <laughs> but I, I found peace and that ego started to come down. Um, and then I started thinking, you know, well, if I can find peace here, maybe I can find a spirituality. So I would go every single day when I got buzzed out because um, I was in a medium facility. So, you know, I couldn't open my door. I had to get buzzed out at a wet cell. Um, anytime that they would buzz it and I could get a pass, I would go to the chaplain's library. And I read every book on every religion, on anything that he had in there. Um, every single day, I'd go in and get my five books, go back and I would just read and do yoga. And I started teaching yoga there. I got involved in Siddha Yoga, which is like a correspondence um, class for inmates. And it really opened my mind to all kinds of things. Um, they had a Tibetan monk that would come in a couple times a year. So I would go when he came and listen to him talk. And I read every book in there. Like the th common thing that was in there is they talked about love. And being happy and taking care of your brother. There was never anything in any book that was like, they're wrong. We're right. Let's fight about it. Nothing. They were all very similar in every aspect. Um, but nobody would take the time to understand that. So that's why they would put those fights up. And people in my own pod would judge me when I'd come in with a book on, you know, why are you reading that? Exactly. Yeah. And jump all over me. And I'm like, why aren't you? Um yeah. You switch religions every week. <laughs> I'm like, how can you say it's wrong if you've never like learned anything about it? Like, how can you base any opinion off of something that you've never read? Um, 
So I did. I absorbed everything. There's some, there's some crazy ones out there. There's a lot of good, but again, every single one talks, oh, talks about the same thing, but everyone views it outwardly from a different perspective. So it's all evil. Um, but I, I started practicing Buddhism and doing the yoga and I started working out, you know, I could barely bench the bar. You know, I was out there <laughs> just struggling, but I didn't have that ego getting in the way of like, Oh my God, what are these guys going to think? You know, like there's lifers in here. Like, they're going to make fun of me because I can't put up 225. you know, like I don't have a car. I'm by myself. Um, and then one day somebody came up and he started working with me. I'd seen him around a few times and when we were working out, he's like, Hey, I go to AA. You want to go to AA with me? And I was like, in here, you, AA, what are you talking about in here? Um, and he's like, yeah, they buzz you out for an hour. You can get out of your cell for an hour. And I'm like, sign me up. I want to get out of my cell for an hour. I didn't like my celly. Um, so I was all about it. When I went, I just went my first time to get out of the cell. Mm -hmm. When I had gotten multiple DUIs in the past, you know, I had to go because the judge told me to go. Mm -hmm. I'd go in there and I'd sit and wait for my paper to get signed. I couldn't connect with any of them in there. All their stories they were saying, I was like, that's not me. I'm not that bad. Um, you guys are old anyway, you know, like I'm a musician, get out of here. And so I only went to get out of my cell. And the first one I went in there, there was a kid. I mean, he was young and he was a lifer and he was telling a story and it resonated with me because it was almost my story. A few details were a little different. Like he came from a wealthy family. I came from, you know, living in tents and trailers that had big holes in it and not having clothes. Um, so a little bit different, but telling his story and he's breaking down, he's never going to get outside of those razor wires ever. And mine was just a little bit differently. Um, I never saw my full discovery. I didn't want to see it. I wouldn't look at the laptop. I didn't read it. I had hurt a couple people in a blackout fight, um, and nearly killed one of them. So I knew that it was bad. I don't remember anything from that night. The only thing I remember is seeing a bunch of feet and I don't even know why, but that's the only thing still after what, seven years that I remember from that night. Um, <clears throat> it could have been me. I could have been a, a lifer. I could have taken somebody's life, even though I was full of hatred. It wasn't the people that I was angry at. It was myself. I was angry at myself and I just took it out on everyone else. I didn't know that at the time. Um, but I started learning that while I was focusing on myself and going within, man, I was comfortable going within. I loved it. And the ego just kept going away. I didn't have to worry about the guys banging on the windows or making fun of us. And when I would teach it, oh man, I would thug those guys. They'd come in and I'd wreck them. Um, <laughs> so there was a little bit of ego there still, but, uh, <laughs> it started changing and, I was getting reclass. So I was going down in, in custody levels and moving from yard to yard and starting things over again. And I was used to change, you know, from being a kid, like change was just part of my life. I never got too comfortable because it was going to change. Um, so it was, it was, I was fine with it, but every yard I would go to, I, as soon as I got there, I was like, I teach yoga. I taught it at this place. Can I teach it here? Um, and I would get into the, the AA meetings because after that first meeting, I was like, these guys are me. They are me. So I started going more and more. And then the same guy was like, there's an NA meeting too. And I was like, what the hell is that? I'm down. Let's go. Hour out. Um, and you enjoy it. Yeah. Now it's not just the hour out. Now it's the hour out and I'm enjoying it. And this. I'm enjoying it. And I'm making community fellowship. And the same thing happened in an NA meeting is this dude's telling his story. He's covered in tats. His face is all tatted up. And he's, again, telling everything from like my childhood all the way to that point. And he starts talking about how like he thought he was an alcoholic yet. He was doing all this other stuff and didn't feel that he was an addict and all this. And I'm like, Holy shit, this guy's telling my story. Are you kidding me? Like I did anything and everything and it was there every day, but I never thought that I was anything other than an alcoholic. Um, and so I started connecting, I started relating that. So I was doing those it's unfortunate because not all of the, the facilities have both AA and NA. They'll either have one or the other, um, depending on the outside 
resources. And so some of them I would go to, there would be NA. Some of them would have AA. Um, there was only two that I was at that had both. And they're kind of hit or miss. So I was looking forward to something. I was passionate about it. I was serious about my my recovery. And I started working with a sponsor on the outside. We were writing and I was calling him. He'd put money on my books. So I could call him and we'd work the steps. And I blasted through those steps so fast because in my mind, as soon as I got done, I was cured. Like I am good. <laughs> I'm going to get out of this place cured. Totally different person. And I manipulated my way through that. I blasted through it. <laughs> and when I got we were wrapping up. I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. Like nothing has changed. I mean, I'm still that manipulative, you know, angry person, just a little less. And so we started doing it again and I really started taking it serious. Um, and he introduced me to somebody else on the outside that we started working the steps together in a different approach. And it made a big difference. And so I would look forward to, because nobody knew I was in prison. I didn't get letters. I didn't get money put on my books. I didn't get anything from anybody. Uh, to be honest with you, people were probably happy that I was gone. Um, so I was in there by myself, you know, and I didn't have outside resources. I didn't get letters. I got my set of yoga. I would get a letter from his church every year and um, my sponsors. And so like when my name was on the list, I'm like, oh, shit. you know, like, I knew what it was and I was excited about it. Um, but I really started working on myself, my recovery in there, making changes. What I started doing right away was if it made me feel uncomfortable, I knew I should probably do it. So if I didn't want to go to that meeting, I didn't want to go over here and talk to these people. I don't want to go talk to my case manager. That's what I did in my addiction. Anytime I felt uncomfortable, I didn't want to do it. I would use, I'd run away from it. So I changed that mindset. So I would do everything that made me uncomfortable and sit with it, be with it. And I still do that. Still, when I'm like, I've had a long week, I don't want to get, yeah, exactly. That's when I need to go. Um, and so it, it continued. Uh, my last two years that I was inside, I was fortunate enough to get on the swift firefighting crew. So I was a squad leader on that. And I learned, I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot of discipline, connection. I was in such good shape that I would run the PTs every morning. I'd run circles around those 20-year-olds. Um, and it was honestly the meditation and yoga because I would focus on my breath. I'd get out of my head. I wouldn't feel that, you know, nine-mile runs hurt because I was not focusing on it. And built this community. We went to a fire in Fort Collins, the Cameron Peak Fire. And when we go to the fires... You know, you go to the IC, the crew bosses get all the information. I, as a squad leader, would be there with them. We'd go back to the crew, relay it. The crew bosses would go kick it. They'd take off, go sit in the buggies, go grab some lunch, and I would lead them up there. So there was no COs. There was no fences. We're carrying axes, you know, picks. We've got weapons in our hands, chainsaws. And most of them are gang members that I'm taking out and about and trying to keep them, you know, out of trouble. Well, some of the other crews found out that we were a prison work crew because you can't tell. We, we wear the same clothes. We look the same and do the same things. And they found out that we were. So they started bringing these guys booze, cigarettes, which found out later that most of my guys are drinking hand sanitizer anyway. Um, and that's a completely different drunk. You don't want to see that. But... <laughs> They started bringing them to us. So there was one day that I took everybody up over this this ridge to go check for hot spots where these houses had burnt down and told everybody to take a break before we got into it. Once we hiked up there, nobody could see us. And they all started breaking out their cigarettes and shooters and having fun going to town. And a couple gang members pulled me off to the side and one of them put an axe to my neck and was like, you're going to drink this or we're going to think you're a narc and you're going to turn us in. And it was like, I've got more clean time right now in my life. I'm not taking a step back. You're going to have to kill me. And they were like, we'll handle this when we get back to the, the facility. So the rest of the fire, you know, I'd go to my tent and I'm thinking, oh shit, first time in my life I want to live. 
you know, first time in my life, I'm happy. I'm doing something. I'm looking forward to getting out. I've got all these goals and ambitions. And now because I refuse to drink, these guys are going to come at me. Um, so we get back to the facility and I remember walking into my room. And as soon as I dropped my bag down, they are in door closed, one of them out tech. And I was scared. I mean, cause normally I wanted to get into fights because to be honest with you, I was hoping somebody would take me out. Um, I didn't want to at this time, but I turned around and one of them got in my face and said, we've got mad respect for you for doing that. Proud of you. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And inside, almost all of my cellies were making hooch. I mean, it's easier to find stuff inside as, you know, some of you guys know. I mean, it's it's right there. You might not even have to leave your cell to get it. If so, it's right across the hall. You know, you don't have to wait for your plug. You don't have to do this. It's right there. Um, and when you're not using it is generally when you have those type of targets put on you. But after that, like I started working out with the guys, like they, they had a lot of respect and for me, and I learned a lot of respect for those guys too, because I instantly was like, oh, these, these gang bangers, you know, like had that negative thought process when in reality they were struggling with their own addictions too. And they saw that I could do it. And so we talk about it and they'd start going to AA meetings with me. Um, and they realized you weren't their narc. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was doing my time. Yeah. When I first got there, one of the old timers was like, you do your number, do your number. Don't worry about all these other fools numbers. And I still carry that to this day. I used to talk to the participants at the treatment center I worked at when they'd come in and be like, oh, this fool over here. And I'm like, yo, do your number. Like you're doing you right now. Don't worry about those guys. Um, still, there's a lot of wisdom that I learned on the inside that I still use today. Um, but I had a very violent case. I had all this against me. I had no plans of getting out when I first saw parole. Um, but COVID hit and I had done two years on a firefighting crew. So my full board had happened overnight and I was on a fire in um, Steamboat Springs and they came and picked me up from there, took me back to the facility, had me pack my stuff and left. And I was terrified. I was terrified. I paroled to a sober living home, never heard of a sober living home in my entire life. Someone that I knew on the inside had gotten approval. So why were you so terrified? Because I had structure in there. I had okay. structure, accountability, and also on that fire crew, like I was driving cars. I had people that, you know, was reporting to me like I had freedom. Um, and Dean Williams had started the normalization in DOC. So I went from making 86 cents a day and wondering, oh, man, should I buy hygiene or a honey bun? Because um, I love honey buns. I still love honey buns. I had one today. <laughs> it, it was tough, you know, 86 cents a day. And I went from that to getting on the fire crew and making hazard pay. So, you know, I was making like 20, 30 bucks a month, which was still really good money. And then he came in, started that normalization, and I was making minimum wage every hour that I worked. If I was down in the, the dome doing office work, I was making minimum wage. Um, and then you'd get hazard pay when you go on fires too. So when I left DOC, I had $3,000 on my books. Wow. I went in with nothing. You know, I went in with nothing. When I got out, I had my khakis, my polo shirt, and a JPay card. And it was kind of cool because that church that I had been writing to sent me a care package. So the next day showed up a little phone, gift cards, like razors, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I was terrified. My parole officer dropped me off there and was like, sit in the house until somebody gets here. And I sat on the couch, didn't move for probably six hours. I had to go to the bathroom. I was starving and didn't move. And one of the housemates came in and he's like, oh, yo, you're the new guy. huh?" And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. When's the officer going to be here? And they're like, Keep talking. There ain't no officer here. Um, and it was like that step back into reality scared me. I went to King Supers right after that. He took me down there and I was terrified. I was walking in there like I should not be here because my life up to that point was monitored. Everything was monitored. And on the fire crew, I got stripped out every single day. 
I got good at making them feel uncomfortable, you know, because every time we'd leave, we'd have to strip out. Um, so I was watched under a microscope and not having that. When I went there, I was terrified. I just grabbed a couple of things off the shelf and I sprinted back to the, the sober living home. I never knew what a sober living home was ever. Never heard of that term before. Um, but I'm thankful because it set up structure. So I wasn't just going back to the life that I knew. Um, I was going into something to where I had accountability. We had meetings, we had, you know, things that I had to follow. I couldn't just be a knucklehead, um, and go. And when I got there, the house manager and the people who had been there for a while are like, DOC clients don't make it, man. They're, you're going to be gone in a couple of days. Oh yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And I've always been, and still am to this day. Like if somebody tells me I can't do it, Oh man, not only am I going to do it, I'm going to do it way better than you would have ever expected. <laughs> Sometimes that's negative, but yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Sometimes in the worst way, but yeah. And so that kind of fueled me on that too. Is like, I had already had this like mindset of wanting to get out and do good for myself and do the right thing. But when that came down and they were like, yeah, you're not going to be here long. Don't make yourself comfortable. You're going to be gone. Um, I was like, after you guys, like I've got yeah. this. And so, I mean, I was up at five o'clock in the morning doing my workout and I'd go look for a job. And I had a job within the first few days. I mean, it was manual labor, but I was happy. I was making a living. Um, the wages program helped me out a tremendous amount. They are fantastic. Love them. Um, but I was a felon. So I would go and apply and people would turn me down, but I wouldn't let it get in my head. I just go to the next place. I was casting that net wide. I went from, putting myself on this pedestal in my old life to now being like, Hey, I worked in DOC kitchen for the last few years. Like, I don't care. I will scrub toilets. I don't care. I need a job. And I was able to buy a car whenever I got out on my JPay card. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started out, you know, doing well. I put down my deposit and first month's rent with money I made in DOC. Um, and started working at the, construction place and going to meetings. I went to a meeting anywhere, everywhere. Didn't matter what meeting it was, CA, CMA. If there was a meeting going on, I was there. Um, that was one of the first things you did when you got out. You started going to meetings. Right I away. wanted to find them. I was like, where's yeah. the closest ones? And I would run, I'd ride my bike or, you know, until I got the car and I would bring my housemates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, started chairing meetings and I talked to somebody that I respect. He's, he actually works for advocates now. He's their director of training. But he was in the sober living house and he was working at a treatment center. I'm like, how did you get into that? Like, how did you get your foot in there? Like, I'd love to go volunteer. Just like go in and kick it, like bring him some books, some clothes, like something. And he asked if he could share my number. So he gave it to the housing director at the time. Gentleman called me. Uh, We talked for a while and he offered me a job. And I'm like, hold on, I just got out of prison. You know that like... I have a very violent case. Like I'm, I've got a three-year tail. I'm still on it. And he's like, yeah, nope, that's fine. When can you start? So I started as a tech at this treatment center and I was terrified, but I connected with these guys. Like they'd come into the office and start, you know, laying out their story. And I'm like, I get it. And then tell them part of my story. And they're like, no BS. What are you talking about? Um, Especially those who had either been in DOC or facing that, um, I tell them my story and they wouldn't believe me. So I started carrying around my DOC card. And then I started carrying it around, not only for that, but as a reminder, this is where I came from. Um, DOC was hands down the best thing that happened to me. 100%. As I stated earlier, like if it would have just been another one of those where my attorney was able to go in there and give me probation, you know, community service or whatever, it wouldn't have done anything. I would have went right back to the lifestyle I was doing in that mindset that I had and it would have just got worse because I kept getting away with it after all of these charges I would get away with it you know I'd have a slap on the wrist but never had anything held accountable um going into that life like I said I had seen somebody jump off the third tier at a pencil stabbed in my neck like I I I seen some things and I'm thankful for every single thing that happened in there because I learned from it. I allowed myself to learn from it. Um, and I used that when I got out. You know, when I at first people were bumping into me in the store and I was like, yo, yo, hold up a second. We need to talk. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and, and 
I had to get into used to that, but he shared my number. I started as a tech. I loved it. I absolutely love connecting with them and just being that non-judgmental piece of their journey. When I was going through my detoxes, you know, as people coming in with a clipboard and they didn't care. They didn't know. They didn't wake up behind the dumpster on Colfax. I did, you know, like they couldn't relate. So I couldn't relate to them when I was at the house. Cause this was a residential program. Um, you know, they would come in and kick it with me and they'd tell me stuff that they wouldn't tell their therapist. And I had a hacky sack with me. So we'd go out and kick the hacky sack in the garage or out in the street and we would just chat, hang out. And I loved it. I ended up moving up the company, multiple positions. I was a housing director. I moved into their outreach business development position. Um, that's when we met. They have an amazing program too. Big fan of Tribe, especially with my background. And as I was stating earlier too, with that Medicaid piece, the facility that I worked at accepts all rays of Medicaid. So the people who are getting told no everywhere, the ones who don't have shoes, who don't have anything, that was me. And I can say yes. That's all I needed and wanted whenever I was searching. So I was passionate about it. I loved it. They do an amazing thing. Um, Tribe does an amazing thing. Um, to be able to assist those people who the world gave up on, you know, they gave up on me too. Um, so I have a special place in my heart for those programs. We need more like that. Giving out all those turkeys, that's dope. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I get out, I get into the treatment world. I'm finding that every single meeting I go to, it's the exact same people. Every single meeting you go to, somebody says, welcome home. And it doesn't matter. It's a CA meeting, CMA meeting, HA meeting, every single one of them. Um, I started bringing friends. And I remember a friend of mine who's since passed was an opiate user. And we went to an HA meeting. He's like, oh my God, they're all alcoholics. I'm like, we're, <laughs> we're all the same, man. Um but I, I tried to get my staff to understand that it wasn't just this one way. This isn't the only thing that works. Uh -huh. And when you have a participant that comes in, and I'm so glad you use that term, um, when they come in and they're like, oh, I can't do this because of this. Awesome. Let's go to this. You are a bartender. Have you heard of chow? Let's go to chow. And I had the ability to be like, get in the van. We're going. Um, and I would. I'd take them to all kinds of meetings. Recovery Dharma. Everything. And allow them to choose themselves instead of saying you have to go to AA, you have to go to NA, you have to do this. No. And then letting them see at that early phase that it's the same community in every single room. Verbiage is a little different. It's the same basic structure. They might've changed a word or two here. They're saying the same prayer, like same thing. But a lot of us on the outside are thinking, okay, I, this is my drug of choice. This is the crew I have to go with. But in reality, it's all one big, one big community of people with like-minded experience, like-minded struggles. It doesn't have to all set in this one area. Tanya always says all the time, you know, treatment happens within four walls. Recovery happens outside of that. How are you going to set yourself up for that success? And from my experience and what you know, she talks about a lot is that community aspect, mm -hmm. being around like-minded individuals. That's why it does not matter what kind of events going on. If there's people who are clean or wanting to be clean or even thinking about it, like I will be there. I'm there all the time. I'm crashing all those parties. Um, <laughs> and yes. I wake up and I remember it the next day, but it's every single community wants the same thing. Kind of like what I was talking about the religion too. They all want the love. They all want the same thing, but this is our room. This is the way we say things. This is the way we do things. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be open to everyone. Um, and they should feel comfortable going into all those meetings. Um, it's something that I still do. I'll go, I have my set meetings that I go to, but there's not an opportunity that goes by if somebody's like, hey, have you ever been to this meeting? Yeah, let's go. Because um, chances are I've been in every single one of them around here. And I love it. I will go to all of them. I love the Advocates has their all recovery meeting. Um, I'm a core member of Recovery Dharma. That's my jams. Um, but it's all the same thing. It's a community. And so I'm fortunate enough now that you had spoke about earlier that 
I get to work for this amazing organization that's grassroots, nonprofit. Like there is never anyone that they turn down. Does not matter. And they are there for their best interest. When I was in the treatment industry, there was there was times that were tough because again, it's black and white. And I saw a lot of struggles that could have been avoided. And it was tough for me when I have those feelings inside of, no, we could do this, um, but weren't able to. So I loved being there. I love catering to those who have the same needs as me. But when Tanya called, (laughs) I was gone, gone. And I love it. Um, I get to meet amazing people. I get to work for an amazing organization that goes and advocates for change, for changing the verbiage uh, and the stigma attached and going and learning what happens at the Capitol um, and seeing how all of this takes place. You know, I didn't get to experience that in the treatment world because I was behind those four walls. Now I'm out in the recovery community learning, absorbing it. I'm a voice. As you can tell, I'll talk. Give me, in, get, yeah, give me in there. I'll talk. So, great. <laughs> um, so I, I'm blessed. And it all came from getting rid of that ego and just letting things happen. My way was never the right way. I thought it was, but it got me to where I needed to be. Unfortunate events took place. But then I learned to not try to control everything. Things are going to happen for a while. And I was telling a story earlier that... I originally applied for advocates beforehand and got turned down because of my criminal history. And I could have let that beat me up. Mm-hmm. And then when I applied to other organizations for positions that I really wanted and they turned me down for the exact same thing, I could have said F it, you know, yep. um, and used that as I'm never going to succeed. I'm never going to be better. But in reality, I want to help other people and I need to help myself. Um because I can't get out of that community or I'm going to go right back to it. So I did the best I could at what I did and doors just opened. And now like I get to, like I said earlier, I get to go to work, which I feel like I'm going home. You know, I go Mm -hmm. kick it at the kitchen table with my family and then our family comes in and and participates. Um, It's. And you work for the improvement of everybody. For everyone. Exactly. Mm Kind of like the whole, like, all community, uh, you know, that I was talking about earlier is that that's what we really talk about all the time is we support all pathways. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we want you to experience what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there ain't one way to do it. No, not at all. Not at all. If there's one way to do it. Damn. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's a blessing. And then I get to do amazing things like this. Like I've seen some of your episodes, um, Hassan came into beauty when I was there and spoke him and his wife came in and blew me away. Like he was calling out the gangbangers and talking real, but this guy was talking about going to the Capitol and doing all this. I'm like, how's he doing this stuff? And now I'm kind of doing similar things. Um, They're absolutely amazing. We need more organizations like this who are truly in it for the right reason, who are helping the ones who don't have the financial backing or, you know, the major insurance and can take, you know, six months off and still get paid, you know, we're the normal folk and we get looked over all the time. So I love these organizations. There needs to be a lot more. There needs to be more beds. There needs to be more resources um, in time, yeah. in time. But I think the peers who have the living experience that can relate I mean, not lived. We're still living, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's going to be crucial in helping people in recovery right now. I hate to do this, but we have to wrap up. Our guest today is Leland Harry from Missouri, works for Advocates for Recovery. Please do check out Advocates for Recovery at advocatesforrecovery.org. Uh, Google them and pull up a phone number. Give them a call. Uh, Nani from Tribe Recovery Homes, if you want to reach out to her, 720-60-TRIBE or triberecoveryhomes.com. Um, and we just, if we can't help you with one of our organizations, we will always, always assist you in finding someone who will. We're not going to leave you hanging and going, oh, well, we don't do that. Goodbye. Mm. That's that's not how it works. That isn't helping somebody find their recovery in any way. So please reach out to us if you need. Um, Leland, thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. so much. Fantastic job and congratulations on your recovery. Congratulations on your 
I don't know if congratulations is the word, but thank you for your changes in life. And I, and I really, I like who you are. Thank you. As a person. I like who I am. I like you. <laughs> I like you. We like you. Yeah. <laughs> Very much. Uh, this is sharing our stories. Uh, we want to thank Caring for Denver for their participation in helping not only us, but so many organizations here in the Mile High help people find recovery. Uh, we'll see you again. And uh, thank you for being here for sharing our stories with Leland Harry from Missouri.